Welcome to episode 89. Acclaimed writer-director Sophia Tikal joins us to unwrap her new festive horror film, Black Christmas, at time of release in theaters everywhere Friday, December 13th. Explore some of Sophia's past films like The Tremendous Always Shine. She'll take you on the path to revisiting the impact of 1974's Black Christmas and how she created an all-new original experience. Sit down for some milk and cookies while you find out about what went into designing the iconic mask building the unique visual world for this film, vintage camera secrets, and the power of a PG-13 rating. You better watch out, you better not cry. The Boo Crew's coming to town. This is Sophia Tacall wishing you a very scary Christmas from me and the Boo Crew. Some of my roommates are missing. If I were missing, I'd want you to unleash the bloodhounds and track me down. Still creating problems, huh, right? I will bring you to your knees. There's someone in the house. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio is an award-winning actor, producer, writer, and director. After being named one of the 25 new faces in film by Filmmaker Magazine in 2011, her trajectory of impassioned storytelling from the page to behind the camera has been lighting genre on fire. The lens has focused on her as well as a vessel for the stories of others, starring in Ty West's unforgettable entry into 2012's VHS, Joe Swanberg's The Zone, and many more. Her feature-length directorial and writing debut, Green, was celebrated at many festivals, including South by Southwest. The acclaim continued for 2016's remarkable Always Shine. She helmed the fourth episode of Blumhouse's groundbreaking first season of Into the Dark, the series for Hulu, a horror film anthology where the stories are each inspired by a holiday. Her entry is the very first Blumhouse original written and directed by a woman. New Year, New You, released January 2019. Further showcase this creator's exemplary skill, unique, inspired, and powerful voice that makes all that she does a veritable experience in tension and uneasiness when it comes to horror and thriller. She has her own production company, Little Teeth Pictures. Her next film opens in theaters everywhere Friday, December 13th from Blumhouse and Universal. It's called Black Christmas. We are honored to welcome Sophia to call. Yeah! That was a really cool introduction. I would like to play it for like my uh, extended family so they understand that I'm not just a deadbeat. Soon you'll be able to. (laughs) Very soon. Congratulations on this massive achievement. Thank you. We are huge fans of your work. And we cannot wait for this film to be released on the masses. Oh, cool. Thanks a lot. We want to just start off just getting a feel for what your first impactful experience with the horror genre as a viewer was. Mm. Okay, so here's the deal with me and horror. I get so scared. <laughs> really? <laughs> that I, I'm hoping the more I make horror movies, like it's a little less scary, but like definitely as a kid, I was so, so scared. So my first memory of being traumatized by a horror movie is I was having a slumber party. I think it was like first or second grade. 
It was like one of my first times having like a slumber party. And my mom was like, we should rent this great old movie called The Fly. Oh, that's <laughs> but perfect. But she rented the Cronenberg version by accident. Ouch, yes. <laughs> and I was just totally traumatized by that movie for so long and tried not to watch horror for quite a long time after that and stuck to my Judy Garland movies. Which that's a hard one. That's a hard day. one to watch. Oh my gosh. Now I've rewatched it since and it's it's incredible. It's an incredible film. But yeah, to be like six and watch that movie it's just <laughs> yeah. do your kids watch a lot of horror that's I a mean, good question we've been yeah. we, we talk about that a lot because we're trying to introduce them into that world right. and it's hard to figure out what those gateway films are right you know i mean yeah. i was so scared i was at a friend my friend nina jean Papa in <laughs> in montclair new jersey like her dad was this really cool totally zany dude and i have this memory of watching the movie lorenzo's oil not a oh, horror yeah. movie <laughs> somehow being totally frightened by that movie and convinced that their house was haunted because her dad <laughs> told some really weird ghost story and then we watched Lorenzo's Oil. So for years I thought Lorenzo's Oil was a horror movie. Just by association. It's just a really, I think a really sad movie. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I haven't ever seen it since then. It was like, I'm a chicken. I couldn't even, I didn't sleep over her house that night. I had to go home early because I was crying because of Lorenzo's Oil. <laughs> Right. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted you talking about it. Uh, just for us, just trying to find what is an acceptable horror movie. It's We started with Universal. Yeah, the classics. Bride of Frankenstein, Creature from the Black Lagoon, all those. Yeah. And then there's Hocus Pocus and The Witches, which is oh, actually really another scary. another really scary one. The Witches, I had to... I watched that and then was crying all night and my dad had to come in and I have a very vivid memory of my dad explaining to me that the movie wasn't real. I was... I would have a recurring dream about being a mouse. <laughs> yeah. It's really scary. I was scared of it as a child. So, of course, I showed my children. <laughs> what was it like Angelica Houston peeling her, her face yeah. apart? Yeah. And, like, and just like becoming a mouse is a generally frightening thought, I think, for a child. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're chasing, so powerless. they're chasing kids throughout the whole thing. Yeah. It's right. like it's just being a kid is a really scary thing. Yeah. 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 They're remaking it. So I'm excited I know, I'm to really, see that. I'm jealous that I didn't get to direct that movie. Oh, that oh, would have been amazing. Yeah. It's done awesome. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so take us on the path of you getting into the art of filmmaking first as an actor and then into your transition into evolving that skill into directing and writing. um yeah well i started out being obsessed with judy garland and wanting to be her and so that meant being an actress and i studied acting growing up and then went to college and decided that it would probably make more sense i went to a liberal arts school where like if you studied film you studied all aspects of film history and theory and filmmaking or conversely if you studied theater you would learn how to act but you'd also learn like lighting for the theater and that didn't interest me as much as like watching a bunch of movies all day did so i decided to major in film and that's where i met my now husband lawrence levine who was my ta in a movie musicals class so my judy garland obsession like really worked out and we started making movies together first i started off as an actor in his movies and also as a producer and an editor we made like really tiny mumblecore movies in new york and then I kind of watched him direct. He's an extraordinary director and writer. And I watched him direct. And I was like, that looks cool. I'd like to try that. That seems like you get to be in charge. That seems fun. And so I decided to make a movie with him and our roommate at this time, this wonderful actress, Kate Scheel, that I made for like $900 wow. at my dad's house and had no idea. It's been really interesting reflecting on it because we're coming up at the end of a decade. And that was the beginning of this decade. And it's just so interesting to see kind of the growth that's happened over the past 10 years but yeah like that was a movie i had no idea what i was doing but miraculously it got into south by southwest and i acted in that movie as well but people kind of responded a little bit 
<laughs> more to my behind the camera work than my in front of the camera work. So uh, I was like, oh, maybe this is maybe the path that I'm meant to be on. And I kept acting for a little while after that, but really have found that I prefer being a director. One of the benchmark films in your career is 2016's Always Shine, which I think is required viewing as it is a real showpiece of your style and your knack of working with absolutely incredible actors. In this case, it is Mackenzie Davis, who was yeah. from Tully and now yeah. Terminator Dark Fate, and Caitlin Fitzgerald from Masters of Sex, Gossip Girl, and most recently, The Man Who Killed Hitler and then The Bigfoot, which is awesome, actually. Yeah. It's really good. And they play so hypnotically off each other. Take us into the feeling while filming what I think is one of the film's most impactful moments, the script reading on the porch in Big Sur. Well, you know, I think so much of what makes that movie work is the script itself, which my husband wrote. And like, I think as a foundation for two extraordinary actresses like Mackenzie and Caitlin, he really gave them quite a lot to work with and they really knew what to do with it. And so my work on that movie was pretty pretty hands off and just letting everyone do their job and do their best work there are certain scenes when you're working on a movie where everyone's shooting the scene and knows as they're shooting it like oh shit that was so good <laughs> yeah and just watching that scene and in watching mark schwarzbard my cinematographer work and like the way he did that slow creeping zoom and just like how everything was coming together and it was if you think about making a movie like it's jazz music that was like <laughs> right. really it was like a really good riff and it just felt it just felt like the movie Kate was coming together and that we were all really vibing in a really exciting way. In Always Shine and even further explored with New Year, New You, and we are so excited to see how you work this space in Black Christmas, is the element of tension. And you are a master in playing with tension to create horror. And the terror tends to come out of a natural place instead of jumping out at you or mm-hmm. accented by a musical stab or anything like that. You build these very strong characters and through development and conversations the true horror comes out in what your characters decide to do and how they behave and that's what really gets under the skin and becomes visceral it means so much more the way you do it what are the delicate secrets of things that are at play to achieve that oh that's interesting i think what allows the movies i've done in the past to kind of build that tension is really is in the characters and in the interpersonal dynamics between the characters and that each person wants something that's diametrically opposed to what the other person wants. It's interesting. I just like started spiraling as you were saying that. I'm like, I actually think there's more jump scares in Black Christmas. (laughs) But I think, you know, I think part of that is that for the first few movies I made, it was a lot about women's inhumanity against other women and the conflict and the horror being in the way women can sometimes treat one another exploring those things like with horror under or overtones like lent itself to these this a more slow burn character driven tension than like you were saying like external catalyst that's driving the character's fear how do you feel that the other elements surrounding you enhance that mood is there an element of cinematography that enhances that score all of yeah for sure cinematography and i've been lucky to work with mark schwartzbart on a couple movies and definitely, like, I find that kind of slow zoom 70s American cinema vibe to be, like, very, very, very scary. And this sense of, uh, you know, a lot of times in my past work, I've tried to shoot things in as few shot scenes in as few shots as possible. Because I think, like, the tension of an unbroken take is also really 
effective, just like waiting for something to happen, not knowing where it's going to show up. And then music, absolutely, absolutely. On Always Shine and on New Year, New You, I worked with a great composer named Michael Montez. And again, like riffing on these like 70s sounds, I, I, those are like movies from the 70s are just my favorite. So finding ways to use those elements but in like more modern storytelling has been really exciting do you have a favorite 70s horror movie well it's from 1980 and it's like the most cliche but it definitely the shining and i watched the donald sutherland invasion of the body snatchers getting ready for this movie and i thought that was great and suspiria all those you know i just think there's just so much inventiveness and playfulness from that period of time People, I guess, were just really high or something. <laughs> <laughs> <Definitely>. <laughs> Have you checked Definitely. out Dr. Sleep? No, I haven't checked out Dr. Sleep, although I'm a huge Ewan McGregor fan. It's so oh, good. It's so good. Love it. so good. Yeah. yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. Oh, cool. And as a fan of The Shining, it's just, it's just so many treats in there. It's such That's such awesome. a fun thing to experience, it's like a ride. Did that movie ever inspire you, by the way, to maybe perhaps use a, you can go with wide angles more than usual? The like, Shining? Yeah, like the Kubrick. Yeah, I, I, we used a wide lens in Black Christmas a few times, and we would be like, should we pull out the wide, should we pull out the Kubrick lens? <laughs> I was like, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> nice. Working our way to Black Christmas with New Year, New You, there was a turning point there. There's a bigger budget. There's mm-hmm. more crew. It was a 15-day shoot, from what I understand, yes. for Hulu. And here we are with the wide theatrical release of Black Christmas, and I'm sure even more of a support system and I understand that this whole path started not too long ago. I mean, New Year, New You is at the beginning of this year. Yeah. How long after yeah. that did the whole <laughs> process? I mean, what, 11 months later, here right. we are. So they approached me a couple months. I think it was like February or March of this year. Wow. And asked me if I wanted to write and direct a remake of Black Christmas. There was no script, but they wanted it to come out this December, Friday the 13th of December. Jason was like, can you do it? Can you do it? And I was like, I don't know. Yes. Okay, yes. <laughs> and it was certainly daunting to think of making a movie so quickly, but it was also, there was something like a little liberating about just following. I brought on a co-writer, April Wolf, who's a wonderful writer, and like following our intuition and kind of just like feeling into our, this like combination of like rage and excitement that we were feeling in this kind, in this like me too, time's up era. Like, what is it to be a woman or a marginalized person in this moment in time when like everything feels so heightened and like the forces that feel like they're against us feel really strong, but so do the forces of change. And like, we kind of put all of that into the movie and knowing it was going to be coming out in the same year made us a little less hesitant that the movie would feel relevant. Like instead of writing a movie and then it coming out five years later and maybe the issue maybe we by in five years we will have all worked out all of our issues it definitely felt very of the moment in a way that was exciting and that like uh, oftentimes i don't have the luxury of exploring in movies how are some of the ways that blumhouse empowered you i love working with blumhouse how did they empower me they gave me this opportunity and totally shepherded in my vision for the film and never once tried to steer me in a more conservative direction for lack of a better word like they were never scared to take this chance i think this movie is you know pretty bold both in terms of thematically what it's talking about about gender issues and gender politics and sexual politics right now but also as a remake it's pretty different from the original and i think like they were always just like understood what i was trying to do and understood 
what I was trying to say and really, really supportive of it. It holds a place in the heart of a lot of horror fans. Yeah. In yeah. 1974. Mine, sure. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. it is iconic created by Bob Clark, who also did a Christmas story, another iconic Christmas and porkies movie. and porkies of all Great movies. Right. Maker. You can find like three genres right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The teen, you know, raunchy yeah. com, the ho- modern day horror slasher and an iconic Christmas movie. Yeah. That's Such crazy. Cool dude. That movie pretty much invented the slasher genre and broke a lot of ground. Not just for that, but thematically things that it talked about, incorporating themes of women's rights and abortion, and it was very much ahead of its time. Also interesting is murder scenes didn't, like it lacked a sexualized violence. Yeah. And it was more about mystery and suspense. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, totally. It was like all these wonderful things. <laughs> it's such a cool movie. To me, That that is what the movie, like, if you were to, one of the things that like when I was talking to Blumhouse, they were like... Here's what like we think is important in a remake is to find a few elements of the original that are essential and then take those elements and then tell a new story with them. That was kind of their philosophy that they said to me. And so for me, the elements that I took beyond like sorority, Christmas, slasher, killer was the energy and the ideas that the movie brought up for me, which is like, yes, the women were extraordinarily well-drawn characters the violence was not exploitative as a woman watching the movie. It didn't make me feel like our bodies were expendable. And this idea of an ever present threat of sexism or misogyny as is embodied by that killer was like something that again, in 2019, I certainly felt this sense of like, we feel like we're making so much progress, but at the same time, again, like there are all these negative forces trying to pull us back into an older time. And once you think you've won a battle, there's another battle to be fought. And that's kind of like, especially the ending of the original Black Christmas, that's what it brought up for me when I watched it at the beginning of this year when they approached me about the movie. And I just thought, well, now's the time to make that movie again. Because that's exactly what we're going through right now. Like, we felt like we were making all this progress. We felt like our voices were finally being heard. And then the same people that we were calling out were getting jobs again and going back on tour again and going on television again. And, And it was just kind of like, if I was feeling a little bit of whiplash, like, oh, this is this is cyclical. This isn't just something that once we put it to bed, it's done. That makes a lot of sense. So it's less about retelling the story, but almost capturing more of that, the breadth of its impact and yeah. tone of what like, the original yeah, accomplished. Absolutely. Because like what you were saying is it was so groundbreaking for its time. That was 40 years ago. There have yeah. been so many slasher movies since then. There have been meta slasher movies like Scream. Like right. I felt like to honor that movie was to try to move the conversation forward. The, what it is to be a slasher movie, kind of the structure of a slasher movie. How wild can a slasher movie get? I think Black Christmas is a perfect movie the way it is. I don't think I needed to come in and like redo that exact movie. And so April and I, and April's a huge horror fan as well. And we just talked a lot about how can we honor the movie and honor the energy of the movie and the intention of the movie and still create something different and new and exciting for another generation who hopefully will like, maybe they haven't seen the original Black Christmas, right. but will like this movie and then go watch that one and they can both exist in a world together. Let's go into the process of beginning to work with April Wolf. She's been a film critic for LA Weekly and The Village Voice. She's does a Switchblade Sisters mm-hmm. podcast that she does that we're fans she of. She does not have a podcast room this cool. <laughs> <laughs> We'd love to have her too. It'd yeah. be amazing. <laughs> what was the reasoning behind choosing her? Why was she your partner for this? You know, it's so interesting. I had only known April as a film critic Prior to this, she said, you know, written something really interesting about Always Shine. And then she came to a screening of New Year, New You, and we talked. And she sent me a script she wrote that I thought was so well written. And so, and I knew she knew so much about horror. And I had started writing a script for Blumhouse on, for, of Black Christmas on my own. And 
it felt like too normal of a slasher movie for me to get excited about. It was just like, oh, the characters are interesting. We're exploring campus sexual politics in this slasher movie. There's something interesting being said, but it just felt like a rehash structurally. And so I sent her the script and I was just like, I feel really stuck. I know I'm going to be directing this movie and it doesn't excite me to think about directing this movie. And she wrote back, having read the script with a bunch of questions just like, what if you tried this? Or what if you thought about the bad guy as this? And they were all such fascinating, interesting questions. And I could have pursued like any one angle and that would have been great. And she would have been a huge help. But I was just like, you know what? You totally get this and you totally understand where I want to take this. Would you consider coming on board and co-writing with me? And she said, yes. It was kind of a big leap of faith because I'd never written with anyone but my husband before. And I'm a pretty difficult person to write with. But she was like, Really chill and super patient. I think she's definitely even more steeped in the horror world than I am and kind of understood when it was okay to break with tradition and create something new, when that would piss people off, when it was okay to piss people off for doing that. And we had lots of conversations about like how will the horror community take this movie and like what will it bring up for everyone? That's like a horror super group. I love it. (laughs) Thinking back to the original movie, it's got this really ambitious shot where it's a point of view of the killer mm-hmm. and he's climbing the scaffolding. So it's like the cameraman's got the camera, you know, it's, yeah. and he gets to the top, you watch him enter the house for the first time, you know, and that was just something that I think was never been done before. Is there a scene in this movie that you put your stamp on to say, Hey, this is something I created, something unique. No, something nothing that cool. No, <laughs> um, no, I, I, no, I think this stylistically, it's definitely in line with the movies I've made in the past. And because this was a re- remake of a movie from the seventies, it mm-hmm. made sense to, riff on there's like oh i used like a split diopter like in the original oh cool and like some snap zooms i i'm really really excited by the style of the film and i got to work with mark schwartzbart again and it was really fun to work with someone who like understood the language and understood what i was trying to go for and knowing we could be playful that's one of the things that i love and that he loves about working in genre is that you can be playful with the camera and like a little cheeky and it still works you're known as we said for creating tension and part of that through score Who's composing for this? Will and Brooke Blair, the Blair brothers, who work a lot with Jeremy Saulnier. Very cool. Um, Incredible to work with. This is my first time working with them. And I absolutely adored them, which was really cool. We never met in person. We're going to meet at the premiere. Uh, It was all done remotely. Basically, like we had been using a bunch of their music as temp score. And I was like, why don't we ask them? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) They'll do it. (laughs) And, And they did. And they just brought so much energy and tension to the piece. It's great. I'm really happy with what they it's, you know, the movie like starts off in a pretty small contained way and then gets very, very big. And so there was something like very challenging about that with the score. How do you build the tension and grow so that by the end, when it's like such a big climax at the end of the movie, how do you make something that like doesn't feel overly like. Indiana Jonesy or Game right. of Thronesy, sure. but like bombastic still feels yeah. right. very rich and full. Talk a bit about the design that we see in the trailer. There's a really unique mask. Oh yes, for the yes. killer. That mask <laughs> is based on a thing called a scold's bridle. You guys should get one of these for your house. Wow. <laughs> That's a torture mask. Um, it's a torture we'll track mask. One down. I think it's from the 17th century or yeah. 18th century. Um, wow. At first, I really wanted to just have like a pretty basic over-the-head ski mask with like holes cut out. And April was like, no, they have that in Riverdale. You can't do that. 
And so then I was like, oh, fuck, I got mask. <laughs> That's great. That's why we got April, right? <laughs> and, so, um, and so I started looking online and I was just like, nothing felt thematically on point. And then all of a sudden I have no idea how I found this on Google. I discovered this thing called a Scold's Bridal, which is a very scary looking iron mask that men used to put on their nagging wives. What? Oh, yes. yes. I've seen these. They're so creepy. Yeah. What and the I remember, hell? Yeah. And the mask was a really big conversation, not just with April, but with like Ryan Turek at Blumhouse because he's kind of like, you know, the main genre guy. Right, right, right. And just like, because another movie that I like really riffed on in this movie is Eyes Wide Shut. And so for like a while, I was like trying to figure out like, do I use like a weird Venetian like sex masquerade mask. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and like I'd just like send Ryan a bunch of ideas and he'd be like no 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 and then yeah, the, the passwords I, for Delio. and then I yeah. found the Scold's Bridal and everyone was like oh yes that and so then Stefan Knight who's the makeup artist also created this mask that's meant to be like a riff on on that Wow. Well, how many are there and how do we get one? You should totally get one. Oh. <laughs> you, should, you should get a real one, though. Um, but then also the thing that we use. I think it's just like I wanted something that was that felt not just scary, but also like that resonated with the themes of the movie. Sure. Yeah. 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 And that felt perfect. And then the poster we've got on the magic portrait here that's got the four girls in some incredible costumes. This poster. Oh, thank you. My husband likes to make fun of the fact that there's two infinity scarves because in New Zealand, which is where we shot the movie, <laughs> right. they were like deep into infinity scarves. And I don't think we really have those here as right. much. <laughs> they look great. <laughs> yeah. He also likes to make fun of the fact that it's like a bunch of girls with sexy, like, typical horror movie poses but they're all totally fully clothed and armed in, in like sweats sweatshirts <laughs> it's very it's a very powerful strong image <laughs> yeah totally they look badass they, I, they think, do. I think like to me like this is what the movie is it's just like it's fun it's powerful it's like women taking charge and not being taken advantage of in front of or behind the camera and it's got a very powerful statement right beside it yeah. slay girls Right. It's awesome. Like on Slay. Yeah. Did you keep anything from the production? I have a glass unicorn, which is an exact replica of the glass unicorn from the original. Oh, no wow. way. That's all I got. Oh, and I have the Santa Claus. I <laughs> took a bunch of, uh, we used some of the weapons from the original and we kind of repurposed them as weapons that the women used against the killer. Oh, that's cool. Nice. Like women taking their power back. Yeah, that's, that's cool. so fun. <laughs> that's I a love great it. idea. What uh, kind of was the thought process behind the costumes? I understand you're big into the costume oh, process. Yeah, I love clothes. No, I um, I think probably because I started off as an actor, I know how important wardrobe is for defining a character. And I wanted each character to feel very unique and specific and not stereotypical. And so I worked with Jandra, the costume designer, quite a bit to find and and I wanted the actresses to feel comfortable in what they were wearing. And there were like big conversations that happened around like how tight the shirts should be and like whether there should be push up bras. And I think like a lot of actresses are used to wardrobe that objectifies them. Mm -hmm. And like the question that we wanted was like, how do we find what you see in like that image? Like, how do you find clothing that feels empowering and like allowed the characters to find their power because the whole like arc of the movie especially for Imogen's character Riley is is about finding your power and fighting back and so like how does the wardrobe reflect that speaking of Imogen talk a little bit about the casting choices that you made to build these strong characters Imogen Poots is one of my favorite actresses ever and I had been wanting to work with her for years luckily enough she had been wanting to work with me as well 
Very so cool. So we sent her the script. She was my first thought for Riley. Lily and Brittany and Elise were all actresses who auditioned for the parts and were my first choices for the roles and just absolutely blew me away with their talent and also their intelligence and openness to the process and just like commitment sounds like such a lame word because it's like well you should be committed but like actually they were just like so passionate about the movie we were making and same with Caleb who plays Landon all of the actors the actors from New Zealand they were all just so open to the process and to the movie we were making and excited and loved horror and like loved that we were making a smart horror movie and felt just like we were all working together to create something bigger than any one of us. Wow. Are there any scenes in the movie that pay tribute to the original? Well, these deaths yes. that happen with the weapons. I mean, there's a cat named Claudette instead of Ooh. Claude. Mm-hmm. There's a scene in an attic where someone may or may not die. I think there's a split second of that in the trailer. Yeah. I caught that and I'm like, yeah, that's she's paying a watch. To yeah. And like now I'm just like, what happens in my movie? <laughs> <laughs> there's this, <laughs> there's a security guard cop guy who doesn't believe them at first. There's no Margot Kidder saying fellatio. Oh, damn it. Elise Shannon, who plays Chris, the one at the end there, she's, I think she's very much kind of like a modern Margot Kidder. <laughs> there was, you know, a bunch of kerfuffle yeah. about having the movie recut for a PG-13 rating, which I think is ridiculous that it even became a thing. When you look at the past 50 years of horror films, some of the very scariest horror films were PG-13 films. Listen, first of all, just to set the record straight, didn't recut it. Really? It just was a PG-13 movie. Wow. Um, okay. I, I, there was a kerfuffle. I guess basically like something that you said earlier that I think is really astute is that the violence in the original is not super gratuitous. And I think the kills in the original Black Christmas are incredibly artful and like exciting and how little they show but can still be so scary. And I knew that it made sense to me in this moment that we're in now to not make a movie where... The violence felt gratuitous and it felt like overly gory because like I, I just my aesthetic as a horror watcher that's like not the thing that scares me that was something that just like from the beginning i knew i didn't want to show a ton of gore and then there was another part of the conversation which is one of the main characters has a trauma in the past and, and there's like just like a lot of conversation about female sexuality that's pretty frank and i didn't want to have to tone that down like that to me felt like like in the original how like pretty frank about abortion like i wanted to be frank about campus sexual politics and and have women have real conversations with one another and so that was a thing where i was like if the mpa isn't going to let that be in the movie unless it's r like i really don't want to have to cut that out of the movie but they were fine with it and so um you know like there were like some like we had to take out a bunch of fucks you know but like i didn't have to it didn't change like anything essential about the movie and that's why it made sense to me and then it made sense to me to encourage a younger generation of moviegoers to go see this movie and discover the original and just kind of maybe hopefully have them discover what can be so exciting about horror. And that was important to me also. Do you have any ideas for a sequel? I do. But it's like a major spoiler to tell you. Okay. Okay. We can can pretend the mics are off. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I think it would take place in... Oh, nice. Yeah, that is my idea for a sequel. That's pretty cool. And if you could put your stamp on another movie and redo something, what would it be? 
Hmm. When Harry Met Sally. Wow. Nice. Yeah. Really? Definitely. Oh, yeah. Great movie. What do you think you'd do differently about it when Harry Met Sally? <laughs> well, I don't know. It's perfect. Um, <laughs> just to hang out with Meg Ryan. Right. Really same cast, same everything. Yeah, exactly. It's really more just a sequel. <laughs> Reading hey, the notebook. I totally bet you anything if I pitched a One Harry Met Sally sequel limited series, somebody would be like, okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I love that movie. I love romantic comedies and dramas like The Notebook, as I said. Yeah, such a great um, one. Notebook. Romantic dramas. There's really nothing better. Were there any uh, major challenges in filming in New Zealand? Other than the timeline to make the movie in general, just like from script to screen, as they say. <laughs> yeah, um, right. I think that Really, it was a great crew and it was really fun to be in a foreign country and just like, it's similar enough to America that it was just like, it felt like the uncanny valley of America. I was like, right. this feels like it should be exactly the same, but like, like a million more sheep. Yeah, there's so many more sheep and like your version of nachos is like blue cheese and curry and I'm not quite sure <laughs> why weird. and walnuts. Um, and, <laughs> but, uh, but there was no snow. Uh, keeping, apparently in the original, they had no snow either. They had an emergency and they had to like borrow all this like, fire retardant from the fire department to put out on the ground. is that what you had to do yeah. that's what we had to do um when we didn't borrow it from the fire department but we <laughs> we had to create our, our own snow and that was tough got everywhere ruined a bunch of my shoes <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> did, you, did you basically have to import christmas from here to there like it, we had to import a bunch of christmas lights and i huh. don't you'd have to ask my dpy but there was like a big conversation about like do will the christmas lights like flicker on screen and so you have to have a certain type of voltage of christmas light and then you have to special plugs for the american ones and then it was like we shipped so many christmas lights and my props master sophie durham who's was an incredible ally making this movie she shipped from maine a pink snow shovel because there was no pink snow shovel in New Zealand. Ugh. And another thing that was really challenging to find in New Zealand, surprisingly, was a menorah. And I had to describe to quite a few people what Hanukkah was. Wow. <laughs> wow. In New Zealand, which was surprising. Um, but my, <laughs> my mother-in-law, I was like, do you have a menorah you can send me? And my mother was like, go to the Auckland Jewish Community Center and ask. And I was like, okay. Like one place, though, <laughs> yeah. one. Well, speaking of Christmas lights, though, I know there's a scene in the movie where the scene is lit by just Christmas lights. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's, that's pretty remarkable considering, you know, that that's very difficult to do. Yeah, we, we, I don't know, we just thought it'd be really cool to have, there's a certain moment in the movie where there's this home invasion and the lights are all off except for the Christmas lights. And we thought it would just be, create a really spooky and eerie vibe that like this thing that you associate with something so cheerful like Christmas time is like now being used in this really creepy way. And now you're gonna go home to your Christmas tree and you know yeah. look, look full of shadows. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> well, uh, Sophia, thank you so much thank you. for taking yes. the time out of your schedule to join us tonight. And congratulations yes. on this adventure. Black Christmas in theaters everywhere, yeah. Friday the thirteenth this month. That's Everybody, right. Go see it. That was a Buku podcast episode eighty nine. Special thanks to our guest, Sophia Tacal. Follow her at Sophia the Coalist on Twitter and at Black Christmas on Instagram. At time of release, see Black Christmas in theaters everywhere. Friday, December 13th. Production tracks for this episode from Power Man 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying, see you on the other side. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy or disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.